Test, test. Okay. We are live here on uh, November 28th, and we're going to talk about um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But before we do, let me pray, and then um, maybe before we jump into today's conversation, we can talk about if you have any other questions from prior weeks, um, and we can, you know, I'll give you, I'll give some thoughts on the statement of faith in general. Um, but let me pray. Lord, I just ask that you would be with us today as we consider the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I just pray that you would um, be amongst us and give us strength to be able to understand and to be able to um, be uh, be uh, just beneficiaries of your the truth in your word, Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, so let's see. Last week. Did y'all talk about the person of Christ last week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the saving, the saving work. That's today. I'm doing that today. So, there's a lot in the person of Christ. Any questions or comments or anything with that at all as you review from the past? Now I've forgotten which which verse it was. I think Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn. Uh huh. And he said, "You got to be, you know, careful of that." Yeah, right. That's well. You tell us. You want me to? uh, Sure. He told us. It's a title. It's a title. Title. So firstborn is. So it's it's a title that is uh, we don't use it this way, but like you know Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know they're the CEOs of their respective companies, right? So if we were in the first century, we might say Elon Musk is the firstborn of Tesla. We wouldn't say that today because he's the CEO, but that's a title. So we would say he's the CEO of Tesla, right? Firstborn of creation is another way of saying chief of creation, but not that he was born. That's really important. So we don't, he didn't have a beginning. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, And so some of that we can also see from what Jim was talking about this morning with Jesus being the ever-existent, always-present image of God. So Jesus has always borne the image of the Father. That's not just something that's new at creation, at incarnation. He always bore the image of the Father. He's the exact representation of his image and has always been the exact representation of his image. So that's one of the fascinating things. You want to come up closer, Marie? I'm going to go over here so you don't... Okay. That's all right. Come on. I'll help you. You got the, Let me carry that? No? All right. You got it? All right. All right. Okay. All right. So does that make sense about firstborn? Yes, it did. Okay. I appreciate you reiterating that because that's a confusing thing that that verse comes along and says something different than what we talked before. Well, like you said, it's a 
Well, and we don't say firstborn. We don't when we say something. Someone is the most important or the leader. We don't say firstborn. Yeah. We say chief or leader or president or whatever, right? Um, and so that's one of the differences with language there. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the idea. Because firstborn in families back then was very very yes. important. Yes. They received all the inheritance. Um, they were the ones that carried the name and the father, right? All of those things. And so, and so that's one of the confusing things with it is that it doesn't mean that Jesus was born in his divinity, although he was born as a man, which is also interesting too. Um, he's he's both. And that's one of the things that gets uh, confusing because Jesus was on earth 100% God and 100% man. So on the one hand, you could say he never had a beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word and was word, word was with God and the Word was God. But on the other hand, he did <laughs> in, the, in, in Bethlehem, right? So Jesus had a beginning as a man, but he didn't have a beginning as God. Does that make sense? Right. Marie? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm That's all right. You do. Well, I just, you feel free to process out loud if you want. Right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, everything. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So it's really important to recognize that the person, the, there's a difference between the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, right? So the person of Jesus is, you know, he's the one who was born of a virgin. He's the one who was God, became man, was always God, who lived and died and rose again. That's what the person of Jesus did. Or that's the person of Jesus. What he did is the work of Jesus, right? And so the work of Jesus is that he died that substitutionary death. He rose again, he ascended, and he's coming back. And so it can be confusing sometimes to say the gospel. What is the gospel? And sometimes we can think about the gospel as separated from Jesus. But the gospel is only the good news about what the person of the person of Jesus did. It's the work of Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, and the, so that's why we focus on that here. And that's not because we, you know, we're like, hey, this is novel. That's what the Bible talks about. Did, did Jesus ever stop being a man? After, like right like, now, like so he was he was he, not a man. He was not a man. Not a man. Then he became a man. Did he ever stop being a man, or will he ever stop being a man? That is a great question, and he has not stopped being a man. So he is. He took on flesh forever, and so he is at the right hand of the Father, a man. Man? He has flesh in heaven next to the Father right now. The only difference is, is that he's got nail prints in his hands. And so he's, he took on flesh. And that's one of the things you can see in 1 Corinthians 15 
is that the promised resurrection bodies that we all share, how do we know what they are or what their properties are? Those properties, those shared properties, are what Jesus has when he rose from the dead. Now remember, when he rose from the dead and he was walking on earth, at, in the end of Luke and John, you know, he says, you know, I'm not fully glorified yet, you don't touch me, all that kind of stuff, right? But he could walk through walls. Remember, the door was locked and Jesus walked in their midst. And so his physical properties are different than the physical properties we have today um, for us, because I can't pass through this wall with my hand. Um, but, <laughs> but the physical properties we have as humans will change once we have our new resurrected bodies. That's what he has. He has the new resurrected body that we will all inherit one day. So he, so in becoming, in becoming man, he became man not just for the, the life he lived, but for all eternity. It's a huge deal because he's, he is now forever associated with us. So the association where from eternity past was only with God the Father, God the Spirit, right? Now it is forever with God the Father, God the Spirit, and humanity, which is surprising. And it makes the incarnation more important and more significant. He didn't associate with angels, although they fell. He didn't, you know, associate with them. I mean, he did, there's no redeemer for demons, um, and they were enemy. Their enemies just the same, but we have a redeemer who took on flesh like us, right? And so, it be, the the incarnation, the the person of Jesus and his incarnation, is more. There's more depth to it than we are used to thinking, if that makes sense. Um, because we think, well, Jesus became a man, big deal. But it is. Um, and there are all kinds of different elements to his earthly life and what that meant for us and then also what it means for him even now because he's, he's put on flesh forever. So, any other thoughts there or questions? Now we can let we let me just give a couple thoughts on the statement of faith. Um, one of the things that Protestants have loved to do in in over history is to write down summaries of biblical truth, right? And so one of the reasons is because down through history there was not everybody could read. Um, not everybody could read. It's only in the last 150 years that the expectation, maybe 200 years. The expectation for every church member is, I assume everybody can read, right? Um, because of our, our school system, our public school system that's been around for 250, 200 years, I don't assume that we need to teach literacy here at our church. I assume when I say read the Bible, I don't think even in my mind, oh, what about those that can't read it? Because we don't have those people here. That's just not the way it is in the United States, right? But for a lot of places, in a lot of places, there were, there were people couldn't read. And so what they would do is they had creeds and catechisms, right? And so the creeds would summarize biblical truth in such a way that was memorable so that people could know what was true even if they couldn't read. 
And so on Sunday mornings, there would be a repeat after me sometimes, right? We believe in God, you know, we believe in one God, you know, and people would repeat, right? And it would get pounded in their heads over and over again. So someone would come along and say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. You know, they would say, well, I do. Because I know that the creed says he Jesus is God of God, you know, he you know whatever it is, and so like they could I don't have it memorized, but they would be able to to repeat that right, and so then catechisms would come up, and catechisms described what biblical truth was right, and so so what a statement of faith is is just it just describes what we believe the Bible says about different topics right. It's not exhaustive, obviously, because it's you know short, but it describes what we believe about different topics in the Bible. So, in, so it's not like what we do is we say, let's see, let me see what this says, and then make the Bible say this. You know, no, this is a reflection of what the Bible says. Does that make sense? Um, and so Protestants love to do this kind of thing, to where there's creeds, there's confessions, there's you know, so you have. All kinds of confessions, uh, you know, like Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, you have all kinds of different confessions that are, um, uh, you know, people have, have had over the years and memorized. Does that make sense? So that, go ahead. The problem is then people start to rely more on the statement of faith, the confessions of faith, of faith over the Bible. Yes. So the challenge, the, and that's where, so that when people couldn't read, it didn't matter. Right. right? You had no choice. Well, and you, that's, why, that's why on, like in, a, in some Protestant, uh, Protestant traditions, there are um, multiple church services in a week, right? That would be the only time people could take the Word of God in, right? right. So I don't assume that. Y'all can go home and read your Bibles. Um, but on a Sunday morning, the preacher or those who are preaching are explaining what the Bible says. And so if we, we, we lived in a community where most people were not literate, um, you know, I would probably preach four or five times a week. For example, there's this um, guy who preached in a place in London called, it was a little town, it's a strange name, but it was called Dry Drayton. Um, and he... He would go out, his, his people were farmers, and so he would go out before the sun rose five, four, four times a week and preach to the farmers as the sun was rising before they could see, um, because they can't read. So he's preaching to them four times a week, and then once on Thursdays, um, and then Sunday mornings, because that was the way they were going to take the word of God in. They couldn't read it. Um, and so we can but one of the challenges for us is we don't. Yeah, and I, I know. And, or now that one of the challenges I, is we're literate. I think, I think all of us. I don't think there's anybody in here in our church who's not literate, aside from children. We're literate, but we don't know the Bible, and that's. That can be problematic and troubling because you don't know how to put the Bible together or what it means or how to fit the whole story together, right? They couldn't read it, but they might have known more about it just because they heard it 
heard because they heard it. And, yeah, they exactly. Paid they paid attention, and that, that's what you know. They're not they're not watching Instagram or t- sports or whatever. You know, they're just working, hearing God's word, working, hearing God's. You know, that was simple, more simple, a different life. So, um, does that make sense? And so when we think about the person, we'll think about the person and the work of Jesus, of, of, sorry, the Holy Spirit. Um, now, the interesting thing about the, there's many interesting things about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but one of the things about the Spirit is that there's, there's a sense, and this is, theologians have recognized this for years, there's a sense of, like, I can relate to a father and I can relate to a son. I have a father, I am a son, I am a father, and I have three sons. We can, and even if you're not a man, you know fathers and you know sons. But the spirit is not exactly a picture of somebody that, you know, I think, man, I really want to get to know a spirit. <laughs> That's just not... That's not how it works, right? That's not, and there's this, there's a feeling of detachment, right? So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It feels like the Holy Spirit is someone completely different. Um, but the reality is the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are all equal. They're all one, but yet they all are they have different missions, essentially, in the world. Um, and so the person of the Spirit is the third person. That, I'll just read this. The, pers- the, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. Okay, now that might not be... So, just as the Son's eternal job, to put it in crass terms is to reflect the image of God, right? So the Son's job is to be the exact representation of God the Father. The Spirit, His job is eternally, it's always been, to proceed from both the Father and the Son. Proceed from? Proceed from. So the way the way to think about it is um, the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son to get, like, to be crass, to get things done in the world. Okay, so, um, so, he's equal, as it says, he's we'll, we'll talk about what that means and how that functions in our world a little bit more in just a second, but he's equal in deity, attributes, and nature with God the Father and the Son, with them to be worshipped and glorified. Oh, sorry, at the top of the, uh, under the person of the Holy Spirit? Sorry, I switched to the next one. The Spirit manifests God's active presence in the world, giving life in God's creation and new creation. Existing forever with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the agent of all blessing to God's creatures and makes possible communion with Him. Okay, so... This, now, that's not going to be very helpful. I mean, it is helpful, but what does that mean? Um, so, remember this morning, if you were in there when Jim talked about the Ezekiel 37, right? And he talked about the wind. 
And he said that could also be translated breath. That's the Hebrew word ruach, which is spirit as well. And so, uh, so that's the, the deal is there is that, so what Ezekiel does is he prophesies to the breath or the spirit and the spirit gives life to those bones, right? So God, he speaks, he prophesies, all the bones come together, they get skin and sinews and all that put in the right place. And then God says, prophesy to the, this army and put breath in them. The breath that comes is the breath of life from the Spirit. Okay, so that's what the Spirit always does. The Spirit is the agent of life. So when we read in John chapter 1 that, when we read in John chapter 1, um, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What life was in the Son but the Spirit? Right? So the spirit is the life that is the light of men, okay? And so the spirit of God is that which gives life, and the spirit of God is that which gives new life. Hey, guys, come on in. So does that make sense? Could you repeat everything? I got it on the, the recording. Let me move that. We get this. Um, okay, so... So the Spirit of God, his job is to, is to give life. So in creation, Jesus created all things. God breathes into Adam and Eve via the Spirit. Now in new creation, where we're regenerated, the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work in our hearts to make us new. Okay? So when we believe in Jesus, that... When first we believe we're sinners, we're on the person and work of the Spirit. When first we believe we're sinners, I have, there's outlines back there too. Oh, looks like I got a couple right here. There you go. Sure. So when we believe in Jesus, the agent, the, 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 the Trinity works together to, on us, to get us to believe. Okay, so the Father... So the Son proceeds from the Father, right? So the Son is the exact representation of the Father. We saw that. He is the firstborn of all creation. So he's the exact representation of the Father. We heard that this morning, right? And so to know the Father, you must know the Son. It is impossible to know the Father without the Son. Likewise, it is impossible to know the Son without the Spirit. Okay? So you can't know the Son without the Spirit. You can't know the Father without the Spirit and the Son. Okay, so the agent of illumination for us is the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so when, um, when you become a Christian and when you have new life and you put faith in Jesus and you repent and you are forgiven, and you are declared righteous, and you have, you know, some, when I was a kid, we used to say, have Jesus come and live in my heart, right? Right? That's not all wrong. The idea is to be indwelt by the Spirit, right? That's a little more, that's scarier to a five-year-old, though, to say, <laughs> do you want to have a Spirit come live in you? It's a little more, it's a little more graspable, and, and con- there's more of a connection to say, 
Jesus come to my heart, right? And so, but that's the work of the Spirit, right? He's the one who makes our dead spiritual natures alive. Does that make sense? And so, when we say here in this first item, this first, whew, that is dirty. Um, when we say here that he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, he, so all the work in, cre- in, in the Old Testament, you'll see the Spirit's activity in snaps, shots, snippets. Usually it's based, you see wind, a lot of talk about wind, a lot of talk about breath. That's usually regarding the Spirit. You see in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the face of the deep, right? And so we just don't know how he's active in the Old Testament. And we don't know with clarity what he does until we get to the New Testament, right? And then at New, the New Testament, one of the things, we're going to talk about Old Covenant, New Covenant stuff here, right? One of the things that makes the New Covenant new is the way that we interact with the Holy Spirit, okay? So in, so we've talked about this before, and this is a question that comes up that people ask. Before Christ came, how were people saved? They're saved by looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah, Right? But they're also saved by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not as obvious. It's not as clear. But at the same time, as well, um, the Spirit is the one in the New Covenant that indwells individuals. The Spirit doesn't indwell individuals in the same way at the same level in the Old Testament. So you have prophets that are indwelt. You have kings that are indwelt. If you read in the uh, tabernacle and the construction of the temple, you have, you know, people who are indwelt for the craftsmanship of the curtains or the the brass, you know, making of brass and silver and gold and all that kind of stuff, right? The Spirit does all that kind of work, right? Now, what's different in the New Covenant is that the Holy Spirit indwells. Joel two says, the old will will dream dreams. The young will profit. You've got everybody. Even on those people who are slaves, the Spirit will come. Not just on the kings and the prophets and those that are leading the nation, but everybody who's a Christian will be indwelt by the Spirit, right? And so that shift, that change happened in Acts chapter 2. When Peter gets up and preaches the very first sermon, Christian sermon, and in, and he, he cites Joel 2 and says this is what the last days look like. The Spirit comes upon mankind. And so what we know to be true now is that if anybody has is a genuine Christian, that means the Spirit of God is indwelling them. Period. That, so every Christian has the Spirit of God. And so that means that as a new creation, every person will at some level want to please God and want to avoid sin and want to, at some level, obey, at some level, want to get to know God better because of the work of the Spirit. So you can think about a passage like Jeremiah... Thirty-one. 
Okay, so Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So remember, the old covenant is is summarized by the Ten Commandments, right? The new covenant is summarized by some new law that is what? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And so the idea there is there is a there is a reality that a Christian knows God because God indwells by his spirit them. Does that make sense? And so there's a reality that, that is that's just true. And so that's the that's the primary work of the Spirit is in giving new life today. That's the primary work, okay? Um, and that's something that if you, I don't know everybody's background. I know your background, but I, um, I don't know everybody's background. Um, but if you grew up in a charismatic or Pentecostal environment, the teaching on the Spirit was very different than that. Um, and it's kind of, they focus mostly on gifts and on, on unique manifestations instead of the primary work of the Spirit is to bring new life, okay? Now, what the Spirit... So there's a guy named J.I. Packer who says... Um, think of this as like a floodlight. There you go, yeah. So we have the ministry of the Spirit is to shine a light on Jesus. So the Spirit never says, hey, look at me. Notice me. Um, Pray in my name. Uh, You know, the Spirit says, no, no, let let me focus you on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the agent of our salvation, right? And as Christians, he's our representative. The Spirit brings new life, and the way he brings new life is through Jesus. Okay, so there's interplay between the Trinity here. Um, And so one of the things that people who have grown up in a Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, what they minimize is the primary work of the Spirit is not gifts. The primary work of the Spirit is regeneration, giving new life, and then the ongoing work of the Spirit is conviction and encouragement. Okay, So if ever we sin, which I think from time to time some of us do, I know I do, if we ever sin and feel conviction, that's not just you thinking, well, I shouldn't have done that. You know, That's not just your conscience. That's the Spirit at work. Um, if you ever do something wrong, and you feel that pang of conscience, that's the Spirit working on you. Okay, So 
then you, what do you do? Well, I want to, you say, I want to follow Jesus. I, I need to go again to him and ask for forgiveness, restore my relationship with him, knowing that he will freely restore it, and that I, I'm, I, 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 I mean, not that I was out of good graces, but I, I'm, there's a sense in which I'm aware of the good graces that I'm in now in a new way, right? Does that make sense? So that's the primary work of the Spirit. Okay, so any questions on that? I skipped ahead on this, by the way. Okay, so one of the things that's interesting, I, I touched on this, but I'll read it from, from the uh, Statement of Faith. The work of the Spirit prior to Christ's coming, coming. The eternal Spirit was present at the beginning of God's creation, carrying out the creative Word of God and giving life to all things. So remember that's what we said? The Spirit gives life, and the Spirit gives new life. So, it's not in John 1 that we looked at today, but when God spoke via the Son, it was through also the Spirit. Okay? In giving life. In God's work under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was present with God's people to consecrate, deliver, guide, and grant saving faith in the promises of God. He empowered prophets to reveal God's word, appointed elders to render judgment, raised up judges to bring deliverance, appointed anointed priests and kings as his representatives, and inspired the record of the Old Covenant revelation. Through all the, the institutions and offices of the Old Testament, the Spirit's work pointed to the ultimate revelation of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. So the Spirit was the active work in the sacrificial system, in setting up of the temple, in the tabernacle and all those sorts of things, okay? Because those that was the way people accessed God, right? And those sacrificial systems anticipated the coming of Christ because everybody recognized blood is needed because I'm a sinner, right? But yet it was every year and it's like, well, what good, what good is this blood? It's not good. We need a better sacrifice. So does that make sense? All right, so now the work of the new covenant, which I already talked about briefly, but I want to... Um, just communicate here and then linger on this just a little bit longer. Uh, the Spirit's work in the New Covenant centers on Christ and the church. It is by the Spirit that Jesus Christ was conceived and born of a virgin, anointed to fulfill his earthly ministry, empowered to offer his life as a sacrifice, and raised in resurrection power. Okay, so one of the things that would be helpful if you ever are interested in studying the Spirit and the interplay with Jesus is notice how many times Jesus, the Spirit is mentioning empowering Jesus. A ton. So the Spirit is active in Christ's ministry. And at what it says here, while he's on earth, what is it? He's... Empowered to offer, he was, he was conceived, so the conception of Jesus through Mary was by the Spirit. He uh, was anointed to fulfill his earthly ministry, empowered to offer his life as a sacrifice, and the Spirit was the agent by which he raised from the dead. We also see the Spirit is, there are times that the Spirit's poured out upon Jesus in unique ways. At baptism, when Jesus um, came up out of the water, he came up out of the Jordan River, which was the same river that Joshua crossed um, to get to uh, to get to um, Jericho, right? He got to the Promised Land. He, he walked. He went through the Jordan River. It parted, right? 
Well, the new Joshua went to the Jordan River too. And this Joshua was coming to give a better deliverance. And so he came up out of the water. The father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. And so we can see all three members of the Trinity of the Godhead working together in the, in the, um, uh, the work of redemption for mankind. Um, so now Jesus is associating himself with people at, there at the baptism. Now, after Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, the promised Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and ushered in a new era of the Spirit's fullness, indwelling believers and empowering them for life and service. The Spirit glorifies Christ and bears witness to him, convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He inspired the record of the new covenant revelation and makes it effective in people's hearts through the gift of regeneration. He illuminates God's word to his people, assures them of God's love, comforts them with his presence, intercedes on their behalf, and sanctifies them in conformity to the image of Christ. The Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ, the seal of our salvation, the first fruits of our redemption, and the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Spirit is the agent by which we're connected to Jesus. The Spirit is the down payment of, in our lives, the Spirit is the down payment of our future glorification. So the question is, how can we know whether or not we're saved and we will end up with Jesus one day? And the answer is by we know because we have the Spirit of God within us. So the agent, that agent of God, God the Spirit is in us, and it's a down payment of the guarantee that will one day be paid in full. Does that make sense? So absolutely everything that happens in a Christian's life is because of the work of the Spirit. If you want to grow in godliness, that's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit. If you obey, that's the work of the Spirit. If you want to serve, that's the work of the Spirit. If you are convicted, that's the work of the Spirit. If you have a desire to walk up to someone and say, "Hey, I was praying for you, and I, I, I want to encourage you in the Bible, in a scripture verse," that's the work of the Spirit. If, if, um, you know, there's all kinds of any positive thing that happens is the work of the Spirit, right? When the, the Bible, when the Word is preached and conviction happens or encouragement or anything, all of that is the work of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Um, so to minimize, it's a minimization of the work of the Spirit to think about the Spirit's work as only being gifts. A massive mem- uh, minimization. Make sense? Um any questions on, on what I... Because I, that's a ton of information here. And I just blew right through it. Um, any, any questions on any of that? Angie. Okay. That brings to mind, how can people think that they're Christians and they're not? How can that be? Wouldn't the Holy Spirit... Sure. Well, and that that that's that's part of that's part of the so when it comes to 
people being Christians, there's two angles to look at it, right? One angle is, if we look at it from eternity, God knows everybody who is a Christian, right? He doesn't need that knowledge. Now, if we look at it from our perspective, with God's perspective, he knows who is indwelt by the Spirit and who's not. From our perspective, we don't. And so, there are people who will make a profession of faith that is, is not genuine because they don't persevere, right? So, one of the ways I think about it is like the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. The, the, Lord, the word is sown. Some have, the, have the, you know, the devil snatches it right away off the path. Some grow. So there's three kinds that grow that are false, and then one that is, is legit, right? So there's the thorns that come in and choke out the word, right? That's the cares of the world, right? There's the sun that comes and burns it up. They grow quickly. The sun burns it up, That's you know, and they turn away. Um, and the third one is... Well, that's the, that's the, well, yeah, there's an, I thought that, well, uh, anyway, the rocks, the rocks, the rocky soil, and, and it, and and there's not, no depth, there's no depth, and so it burns off, and so, so, but then there's one that, the fruit, you know, you can see the fruit and it grows, so, we can't tell, I can't tell if the Spirit is indwelling you, you can't tell if the Spirit is indwelling me, the only way we can tell is by how we live, Right? So horizontally, we can't tell. So I can't say with, I can't say, oh, I see the spirit. I see the spirit like there's this aura around Joshua. I can't see that. But I can say, I can say, I've seen his life. I see that he's not perfect, but he wants to please the Lord, right? And he wants to obey and he wants to confess sin, right? And I say, he has reason for confidence, right? And so that's where what I want to do is educate people sometimes. And you'll hear me talk about this from the front. There are a ton of people who believe that if you pray a prayer, if you get baptized, if you raise your hand, or if you walk down an aisle, then you're fine. It's not true. Um, Well, but that's like that whole idea of altar calls and those kinds. That's why I don't do altar calls here. We don't do them. Because... People can put confidence in an outward activity when there is no internal change. So the way we can tell if change is real is by the lifestyle and if there's a change. And so for and those... And a long lifestyle. And a long time. And a, time, a long time. And so, yeah. You can, you can put on that faith. The growth that happened. Yeah. There was growth. Right. There was legitimate fruit. Yeah. Well, and you see legitimate fruit. And over time, it's going to be clear. So... The way we can tell if someone is a real Christian or not is when trials come. So when hardships and trials come, what, how do they respond? That's always the way you can tell. How do they respond? Do they, there's two ways they respond. And there's always two ways. One is you come closer to the Lord. And usually that's expressed by coming closer to people and asking for help. Two, you, you move further away from the Lord and you don't want help and you isolate yourself. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. And so the Puritans used to say the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. <laughs> the same sun, right? So what we have to ask ourselves, is our hearts 
soft like wax under the sun? Or does that sun harden my, does that hardship that comes, is that hardening my heart? So does that make sense? So, but with, from the other side, from God's side, he doesn't, he knows. He knows, where, he knows who is. And so one of the things we do as a church, one of the ministries that we have, and every faithful church should have this, is to, I say this, I'll pray this sometimes, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? Because there are people here who are comfortable and they should be afflicted. What was that? You said oh, sorry. <laughs> one of the things we want to do with our preaching is comfort the afflicted, okay? People who are maybe feel a burden of their sin or they're carrying their trials around and you know that kind of thing and they just feel put upon. And I want to afflict the comfortable. Oh. Now the way I afflict the comfortable is not by bearing, putting burdens on them but by, <laughs> but by showing them the weight of sin, the weight of their sin, right? Yeah. So one of the things we want to do is not take for granted anybody's um, salvation, and that's not as if I go around saying, I'm not sure you're really saved. But um, I don't want to jump to assurance unless it's not, assurance is not based on a prayer or a baptism or any of that thing. It's, it's based on the lifestyle we live, right? And so that, that's one of the reasons we do church discipline. Um, and we had to discipline somebody who was a former leader recently, this year. And I wouldn't have thought he wasn't a Christian, but the testimony of his life when, and it wasn't the whole time, but when a specific trial arose, he ran away. And so, and it was after many years, and so I'm praying he comes back, but the way you can tell if somebody's a Christian is by the perseverance. Um, and then oftentimes, afterwards, they follow, I've talked to one person that fell away, and they talked about how miserable it was trying to follow Jesus it just never worked. And that's because they didn't have the Spirit of God, right? Does that make sense? So does that help? Yeah, when you just, it's just drudgery. It's drudgery. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other thoughts or questions about that, the work of the Spirit in Christ and the New Covenant? Okay. Um... The gospel. Um, and so here's, this whole section is the application of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so remember, every blessing that comes to Christians is always and only by the Spirit. That's the big category, right? So if you ever see a promise in the Bible, this is what it means, the, the blessing comes by the Spirit. Okay? Even though the Spirit is often the silent partner in the Christian life, right? So the, Christ, the, the, the Spirit works through the Word. And so when I read, when I read through my Bible reading plan and, you know, I, I read something in Psalms, like I did yesterday or the day before, I can't remember which, and the idea of taking my refuge in the Lord, and I, yeah, that's right, it's a good reminder. That's the Spirit working in me through the Word. It's not the Spirit on His own necessarily. It's He's working through the Word, right? Same thing with the Gospel. The Gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the only way that finds purchase in somebody's heart is by the Spirit, okay? So, that's 
well, anyway, I, I could go on all kinds of rabbit trails. Okay, so the gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to accomplish salvation for humanity. Therefore, the gospel is not a human achievement, action or achievement, but rather an objective historical divine achievement that remains true and unchanging regardless of human opinion or response. The gospel stands as the core message of the Bible, which in all its parts testifies to God's saving acts culminating in the person and work of Christ. The good news is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, providing hope for the lost and abiding comfort and strength for the believer. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, and there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Okay? So, even though right here in this paragraph about the gospel, unless I missed it, there is no reference to the Spirit, is there? That's because the the gospel is the the gospel is it lands on somebody's heart via the spirit. Does that make sense? So that's why this is under this heading. And so now it starts now the gospel what they're saying here is the gospel is a fact and a reality that is objective that stands outside of us. So whether we believe Jesus who Jesus is and what he did for ourselves, it doesn't change the fact that that's what he did. That's just true, right? And so the, the hope the hope is that my hope is for everybody who's not a believer to be able to put faith in him and trust in him but whether they do or not the gospel's still true right um, now the effectual calling regeneration and conversion so God commands this is the next heading God commands the gospel to be proclaimed to all people everywhere but all people are spiritually dead and unable to respond to this saving news Therefore, God graciously and effectually calls to himself those he chose to save in Christ. Through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates the elect and brings them into a living union with Christ, bestowing new spiritual life, opening their eyes to see God's glory in Christ, and enabling them to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance with a renewed heart and mind. We receive Christ and rely fully on him for salvation. Uh, turning from our sinful, self-seeking way of life to love and follow Christ in joyful obedience. Only those who respond to the gospel in this way will be saved. Yet even this response is a gift of God's merciful grace, ensuring that he alone receives the glory for our salvation. Okay, so... What, he, what this is saying here, this is, it's helpful to, to recognize that though the gospel exists outside of us and is true, we would not believe the gospel if it were not for God's work via the Spirit in our lives. Because we would be and are, apart from God, in Christ, by the Spirit, spiritually dead, right? So there would be, the gospel is true, but... It would be like I could go and preach. There's a graveyard just half a mile from here. I could go and preach to the tombstones, but there's nothing that's going to happen. And every person that is alive in the world today is as spiritually dead as those people are. Now, apart from the work of God, there is no life that comes, even at the preaching of the gospel, unless the Spirit is active. 
Does that make sense? Unless the Spirit's active in their hearts. And so we've got these three words, effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion. Okay, so let's look at each one of those. It's described here in the paragraph. It says here, Therefore God graciously and effectually calls to himself those he chose to save in Christ. And so that's election language, right? So there is the elect, the elect um, election we can read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and many other places where God predestines some for adoption. And so those that are predestined, those that are elect, he effectually calls to himself by the preaching of the gospel through the Spirit, right? So none of those people who are elect are just saved without the preaching of the gospel, right? The gospel must be preached and they must be effectually called by the Spirit, okay? And then when that calling happens, what does it say? Um... Through a proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates the elect and brings them into a living union with Christ, bestowing new spiritual life. Regeneration means you become alive. What was dead is made alive, right? That's what regeneration means. And then conversion is that when our eyes are open, instead of going this way, we go the other way. We repent and go the other way. And we now begin to follow Jesus, right? So we're not just saved from our sins. We're saved from our sins to follow Jesus. There's always a salvation from one thing to something else in the Bible, right? The nation of Israel was saved from slavery to Egypt and Pharaoh to follow God. We're saved from uh, bondage to sin to follow Christ. Does that make sense? So that that whole that that's that work right there is the work of the Spirit. Again. Um, I have prayed and prayed for my children to come to the Lord, and they have not yet. Uh-huh. And sometimes I'm tempted to think. Well, I'm just going to have to accept that God did not call them. God did not elect them. So how should I feel about my kids? Should I just keep thinking that they're going to be saved someday? Yes. I mean, I think, so the way I think about that is God has saved you. And in saving you by the power of the Spirit has put on your heart your children, to pray for them. And should they be saved, um, the human agent in salvation will be your prayers. Um, one of the things we don't get to see is who's elect and who's not. We don't. And nobody can tell. That's So like, we'll never say who's elect and who's not. Because I can't tell. I mean, there are people today who are living double lives and they seem to be Christians, but they're not. There are others that maybe are baby Christians and you can't tell that they're elect, right? And so we're not able to say who's what, necessarily. Um, so our, our job is to just do what God commands and 
tell the gospel Pray. to all people. Yep. So what we don't know, what we don't know is who's elect. What we do know is how the elect will be saved. Right? We don't know who's elect, but we know how are they going to be saved by the preaching of the gospel. Does that make sense? So the proclamation of the gospel is what will save the elect. That's the only thing. Okay. Now, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Um, so you... Oh, it went away. That's all right. So you... Oh, it's gone. If, if you're... The preaching of the gospel to the elect, are the elected preaching the gospel or everybody around them is preaching the gospel or just everybody's preaching the gospel? That's all right. Uh, so are you saying to, who, to whom? The elect. So yeah, so like one of the one of the challenging things with this whole conversation about elect and non-elect is we don't know who the elect are, right? We can't tell. We don't know. So there's no we're not walking around with big E's on our head, you know. Um, We can't tell. And so what we don't know is who is elect. What we do know is that the elect are saved only by the preaching of the gospel. So now some people are going to say. Well, that means not everybody's going to be saved. And that's true. But at the same time, so there are, there's a, another position called Arminian that says um, the, elect, the elect are not people God chose. They're people that chose God. But the problem with that is that is a choosing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, I would say that if God didn't elect, and I think the scriptures are clear on this, if God didn't elect people, nobody would follow him. Right? And so, when it comes to what we don't know is who is elect, what we do know is that those elect people, we as elect, that are, we must preach the gospel to everybody. So we, that's our job. Right? So we don't, we don't go, hmm, I don't know if you're elect. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'll, I think you might be, so I'm not going to preach the gospel. No. I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel because that's the only way the elect are saved. So then there's a, a certain, I guess, I don't know if assumption is the right word, a, a sense of assurance, I guess, that if, if we consider ourselves a, a Christian, that we are elect. That, that I can say with a certain sense of confidence that I'm elect. You can say with a certain sense that you are elect, and therefore... Knowing the, the the path that it goes, I got there because somebody preached the gospel to me. Either one of us saying it, and therefore, for other elect, I have to fall into the category of the elect preaching the gospel to more elect. Yeah, right. It's like the reality, kind of like the, you got it. The reality is, you wouldn't have responded if you weren't elect. Right. Right. No one else would either. Now. When I'm preaching the gospel to somebody, I don't say, hey, listen, if you're elect, you're going to respond. I just <laughs> preach the gospel. And so when they become saved, it's like, it's like walking into a room and you realize, whoa, this room has been prepared for me. There's, you know, my name or whatever. Like, it, you know, you, like if you ever walk in a, um, a surprise birthday party, right? And you, you weren't expecting it. You walk in and it's like, surprise, everybody's here, here's a cake. Here's, here's, everybody's there to celebrate you and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, it's, a, it's like a shock. Everybody's been thinking about you before you got there when you weren't thinking about anyone else, right? It's the same thing with election. You walk in the room and you go, God's like, surprise, I chose you from the beginning, right? 
And so that's the only reason you chose me. And the only reason we chose him was because he chose us first. I mean, that's what Jesus says. The reason you love me is because I loved you first. Um, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we couldn't choose him. But far from making us people who are like the frozen chosen, um, or frozen chosen, or just dead in our like, just just saying nothing matters. What we, what we do doesn't matter. Actually, it matters greatly because we know that there are people out there that are elect. I think of Elijah when he was really discouraged about the Baals in his day. He says, "I'm the only one left," and God says, "No, there's seven thousand. <laughs> there's seven thousand who haven't bowed the knee." You're just one of 7,000. Or when Paul's afraid, um, and he says, I have many people in this city. And so, like, if we were able to get his perspective, I think he would say to us, there are many people in the East Valley that are mine. And our job is to go preach the gospel to them. That's why we want to train in evangelism. That's why we want to care about who our neighbors are. That's why we want to plant churches. That's why we want to get to know our coworkers and and our neighbors and our friends and our families and those kinds of things so that we can tell them about who Jesus is so that those who are left might be saved. And if we don't go preach the gospel, then it's possible that somebody who is elect isn't? No, that's impossible. No. No, that's impossible. What we would say... No, that's a, that's, that's a good question. That's a good question. question of yourself? No, what that would be is... So that's where we step on this side and go, he will get all whose are his. But we know the way he will do that is by preaching the gospel. So we must go and preach. So, but it's saying like if, if we consider ourselves the elect, but then we fall to the side of all, because I've been elected, I'm not going to worry about saying anything. Right, that's hyper. Then that, then that might actually put in question of, oh, are you well, that's hyper-Calvinism is what that is. Oh, yeah. The elect, the, elect, the elect will get saved themselves in their own way. The elect will get saved without the preaching of the God. We don't have to worry about it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Angie. Sure. Then that means, does that, does that mean that the people like in the jungles of Africa who have never heard preaching what it means, yeah, so that's a good question. Right, so that's, that is, that's one of the mysteries. Why? So, first of all, we don't know, we don't know what they know, right? So, we don't know what they know or when they knew it, right? And so, uh, like, there's records of Christians making it to China in second, second century, right? And that there were followers of Jesus in China at that time. And we have records of that, right? So one of the things is we don't know how far the gospel has made it and who who has heard it and who hasn't, right? Um, we know that also we know that people, their disposition, whether they're an American or a pygmy in Africa, their disposition is, is animosity to God, right? We know that. Um, we also know that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ, right? And so um, that's where I say, if someone hasn't heard the gospel um, and they die, I, I am okay, not just okay, I am, 
I have thrown myself on Him for mercy. And I'm, I want to commend them to Him for mercy. Because He's the God who is merciful and gracious, patient and abounding in steadfast love. Right? Now, He's the one who's going to be able to sort that out exactly right. Now, why no one came and preached the gospel, I don't know. Um, but I can commend them to Him. And they're not going to say after judgment, that wasn't fair. They can't. <laughs> and I don't know how or why and how that works. Does that make sense? But for us today, we need to preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus. Because we all know, everybody in our, in our community has heard the name Jesus. There, our problem isn't with the people who, don't, who haven't heard, it's the people who have heard and don't care. That's, that's our challenge. And so, there, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't send people around the world. We want to, and we do. And that's part of the reason we're connected with Sovereign Grace. And we're connected with our friends in Ethiopia. Who's, there's a civil war, and he's there pastoring 150 people. And um, so that's part of what we're, what, why we want to connect with other, place, other churches, or con- plant churches in other places so that they can reach places we can't. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's part of why we want to do that. So even in our own community, I mean, we want to plant a church in Mesa that is bilingual, because there's a lot of folks that are bilingual that wouldn't want to come here. They wouldn't feel comfortable here uh, with a bunch of us who just speak English. You know, but in that community, in that place, you know, to be able to go there and reach them, I mean, that that's super valuable. Does that make sense? Um, so, all right. That's effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion. All of these things are like libraries full of books on, but we're just going through them in like nine minutes. <laughs> so uh, this is the speed. This is the speed course. And so now, so okay. So if you look at the logic of this page, it says the gospel is the message, right? Effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion is what it happens to you. Okay. So the message. Here's what, hap- what happens to you, what happens to me, is effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion. Okay? Now, justification and adoption is what is proclaimed about you as true. Okay? So one is the message that is preached to you. The other is what already happened to you as a Christian. Now, this is what is true about you because you're in Christ. It's proclaimed over you. Does that make sense? Because of Jesus, all right? So, justification and adoption. Okay, so now, I'll read it and then we'll talk about what that means, okay? In their union with Christ, believers freely receive the benefit of the gospel. Okay, so this is one of the benefits. These are two of the benefits that come with being a Christian. Those whom God effectually calls to himself, he justifies in Christ forgiving all their sins and declaring them righteous and acceptable in his sight. This declaration is judicial, addressing not not our nature, but our status with regard to God's law. It is definitive, being neither gradually gained nor able to be lost. It is a gracious, free gift of God's righteousness based on nothing worked in us or by us, but received freely by faith. The sole ground of our justification is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, whose life, whose life of perfect obedience is imputed to us, and whose substitutionary death on our behalf completely satisfies the demands of God's justice toward our sins. 
Now, that is a mouthful, but the reason that's a mouthful is because if there is one thing that people go after and try to redefine with the Christian, it's justification. So, justification, when he says, when that, doc, when that thing says it's judicial, the idea here is that it's a legal declaration. Okay? So, if I get a, if I have a, if I come out of here and I drive down to Houston and the right light turns red and I stop and I, when the light turns green, I go and I'm pulled over by a police officer and he says, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, no idea. And he goes, well, you didn't stop at Houston. And I said, well, I did. No, you didn't. Okay. Well, we go to court, right? And it turns out I was right from whatever evidence I'm able to, whatever, you know, I don't know. There is a legal there is a legal declaration that I am not guilty of running that red light, right? That's the legal declaration. So with Jesus in our union with him, there is a legal declaration that's called justification which is a legal declaration that you are righteous. Now, the important thing with this, the important thing with this is to know that this righteousness is imputed to you. That means you don't grow in justification. You are justified. So right now, you are not as godly as you want to be. None of us are. But we are justified before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay? So this is the great exchange. Christ gave us his righteousness. We gave him our sin. See that? That's why there is a declaration that says righteous. That's because Jesus died. In dying, he took our sin and in rising, we receive his righteousness. Okay? So, this is important for us to recognize as Christians. When we come to him, we are forgiven. And I think, I think sometimes we can stop at forgiven and we shouldn't. So, if I owed $10 million to somebody and I was working a minimum wage job, you know, I would never repay it. Right? Um, and I would be forever in debt. So sin is like that. Sin is being forever in debt. Now, imagine somebody says, here's $10 million. I'm out of debt, but I'm at zero. Right? That's forgiveness, which is great. Get out of debt. But imagine if that same person said, not only you're out of debt, here's $10 million. I'm $10 million in the black. Right? That's the righteousness. See that? That's the right. Not only are we forgiven, but we're declared righteous. So our status before God is as, as if we have never sinned. Exactly. I love that way you described it. That's great. Thanks. That it is as if we did not sin because 
Jesus took our sins. And it would be wrong for us to be punished or treated as if we were sinners. Why? Because Jesus did it. And so the justification that we have is a legal declaration. Now, are we as... So this the problem with this word righteousness is it can be used in two different ways. One is, like, in, it's a synonym for godliness. So are we as godly as we want to be? No. Right. But righteousness, are we in God's sight as righteous as we will ever be? Yes. Right? Because... Here's why. Because Jesus, can Jesus become more righteous? Has he already taken our place? Yeah, he has. He took our place. So his righteousness, it's this word, it's this word, I'm going to use a word that is, is kind of confusing, but I'll write it down here. Imputed, okay? Yeah. Imputed. Does that, that means... Um, It's not on there, no. So I'll just explain it. Um, Or I'll try to, right? Um, If I impute guilt to somebody, that means I'm saying you're guilty, right? Okay, so there's a double imputation with Jesus here, okay? And I'll try to explain what I mean. Okay, so we have mankind are sinners, right? Jesus is righteous. Okay? And he showed his righteousness by being obedient at every turn, right? And being obedient to the cross and being completely blameless and all that, right? Okay. So, we have sin. So, what happens at at justification is this word... is So, righteousness... is imputed to Christians. Sin is imputed to Christ. So, not only is the righteousness of Christ ours, so that we can be declared righteous by based on Him and His status, but also the sin we have committed was imputed to Jesus. So it was as if on the cross, he was the one that committed that sin that all of us committed. Not just today or the last number of years, but everything we've ever done. Or will do. That's an, that's, do you see that? That's a double imputation. Okay? And that's one of the things, justification, and that justification is not by works, it's by faith. And that justification is one of the things that is unique about Protestantism. This double imputation, sin and righteousness, that is one of the things that turn the world upside down. Yeah, because it seems so out well, of whack. Right? Well, because what people will say is, if I go around telling everybody that you're righteous and you don't have to do anything to get saved, <laughs> they'll live how they want. They'll smoke pot and whatever, you know. And so, and but but here's 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 the deal. What we've seen already in the person and work of Christ is via the Spirit. The Spirit indwells His people and His people are going to want to please God. 
right? And so the fear of people will do whatever, you know, they'll go crazy. They'll be, you know, they'll be profligate. They'll be whatever. Um, that's not, then they're not elect and they don't have the spirit of God. Does that make sense? So there's a great fear of justification. So in the Roman Catholic Church, they do not believe in justification by faith. They do not, well, they, they say they do, but they use the word infused here for imputation, okay? So they would say righteousness is infused, meaning that like if I go, if I take my, this is getting more and more expensive, I take my 2005 Chevy Tahoe to fill up. It used to be like 40-something dollars. Now it's almost 80, right? If I go fill it up, I fill up my gas tank with gas. I infuse gas in my gas tank. Now, I drive around and it goes down and I see the level of gas going down, down, down. Well, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, your level of righteousness, you need to keep it close to full, right? And the way that you stay all the way full is by getting baptized. So that's why they baptize babies, because a baby died, infant mortality is super high. You baptize babies, they are righteous, and then they die, they're fine, they go right to heaven. And so, but what the Roman Catholic Church says is that the infused righteousness of Christ is real, but the way you keep it close to full is by going to Mass, it's by, it's by doing indulgences, it's by... Um, praying Hail Marys. It's by going to uh, confession, um, and in, depending on the depending on different times and places, it's also venerating saints and um, going on pilgrimages, right? And so that takes the E and pushes it toward F, okay? And so um, that's infusion. And so then the reason there's purgatory in their in their formulation is because nobody can keep it on full. So depending on how much Low, what righteous your righteousness level is, how low it is, then you have to pay that price in purgatory. Does that make sense? So there's no purgatory because we have sin imputed to Christ and right his righteousness imputed to us. And we're not we have not an infused righteousness. Make sense? Okay. Now, lots of Christians don't understand that. And lots of Christians live like they're trying to earn their salvation. That obedience is the way in which they earn their salvation. And you can be a Christian think that, but you're not going to be a Christian who feels any kind of any kind of freedom in life. Right? Alright. It's more the obedience comes from it's thankfulness that I'm declared righteous. Well, yeah, and rather the rather than a, I have to do good things to keep my and the internal desire yeah. to please the Lord, right. Uh-huh. And then adoption, so you can tell what's controversial in this sentence, right? In this, so we have like, we have in justification and adoption, we have like nine sentences or five sentences on justification and just a couple on adoption. So in the history of the church, justification is more controversial than adoption. Um, yeah. So those whom God justifies, he adopts into his family, granting them full the full status, rights, and privileges of beloved sons and daughters. As God's children, we receive his name, enjoy access into his presence, experience his care and discipline, and eagerly await the glorious inheritance he promises his own. And so that makes total sense because he's father. Jesus, now we don't talk about Jesus in this way often, but Jesus is our older brother. He's our older brother. Uh, that's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He's our older brother. 
Um, and uh, we've been adopted to his family. And so that's cool. And the spirit, like, right. So where is the spirit in all this? He's doing everything. Right? He's doing all of it. It's all that he, what he's doing here. Right? Oh, look at this. There's imputation. I forgot. There's imputation on verse 4. On, okay, there we go. So there's a good... To think of impute, number 4, to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us and it therefore belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, so it relates to us on this basis. And that's from Dr. Grudem. So, does that make sense on imputation? Okay, now, now it says sanctification, perseverance, and glorification, which is what's left in our Christian life, right? So let's go back, right? We have the gospel. The gospel is the message. The effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion is what happens to us. The justification and adoption is what's declared over us. And then the life that we're still called to lead is sanctification, which means growing in holiness, perseverance, which means holding out to the end, and glorification, which means getting our new bodies. I'll read this. As the all-sufficient Savior, Christ has also sanctified his people cleansing them from the impurity of sin and setting them apart for God and his service. The renewing work of the Holy Spirit breaks their bondage to sin and Satan and raises them to new life, enabling believers to put sin to death and to grow in likeness to Christ. Sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. That's really key to understand. Believers must persevere in their faith and obedience in order to be saved. Yet this perseverance is also a gift of God in Christ, who perseveres his own, who preserves his own, and keeps them safe forever. The ultimate goal of sanctification is our full conformity into Christ's image, which will finally come when believers are raised physically with Christ in glory, freed from sin, and exulting in the the presence of God forever. Now, the key thing I want to just highlight here is sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. That's confusing because we're not good at, we're good at either or, not both and. And so, sanctification is, sanctification just, to sanctify something means to make it holy. Okay, that's that word. So, like, if we have, like, any, any in English, any word that we that starts with sanct means something that holy, like, right? Sanctuary is a holy place, right? Um, what's another one? Um, like in Spanish, uh, Santa Fe, that's holy faith, right? And so sanctification is the progressive process of becoming more and more holy, or like I'll usually, I'll say godly, like becoming more and more godly. That makes more sense, like, Growing in likeness to Christ. That's sanctification. That's an ongoing process that all of us understand. We all have remaining sin and we grow in our ongoing holiness over our lifetime. But it is also a definitive act. God, because we're declared righteous, we're also declared holy. That make sense? So... Those are theological terms that can get a little bit confusing. 
And so um, a lot of times from the front, what I'll say is, I'll, instead of saying sanctify, because that's a kind of a Christian-y word not everybody's going to understand, I'm going to say things like grow in godliness, um, transformation, um, just grow as a Christian, um, become more like Jesus, you know, things like that, instead of, um, instead of the word sanctify or sanctification. Does that make sense? That, though, is the work of the Spirit. <laughs> right? So, the work of the Spirit is... So, we've got all this stuff. If you'll notice, back again to... Back again to the Gospel, right? The Gospel is the message that comes to all of us that is the only message for salvation for any of us who are saved. Effectual calling, regeneration, and conversion is what happens to us. Justification and adoption is what's declared over us. Sanctification, perseverance, and glorification is what is happening and will happen to us. Right? And all of it is applied to all of us by the power and work of the Spirit. Okay? All of that is true and all of that is what goes on by the power of the word of the Spirit. Now, notice we haven't talked about gifts at all. Um, and this is one of the things that I think is a wonderful, that is, is a, it's a contradiction in some circles, right? There are 260 chapters in the New Testament and four talk about spiritual gifts. You would think in some circles that there are 260 chapters about spiritual gifts and four talk about other things, but it's not that, that's not true. So that's one of the reasons. Do we believe that the Spirit empowers his people in miraculous ways? Yes. Do we believe that, that the spiritual gifts are active today? Yeah, absolutely. But is that the focus of the New Testament? No. Not at all. Not even close. Not even close. So it's not even on the radar screen when it comes to the emphasis. The emphasis of the New Testament is on the work of the Spirit um, in the normal active, the normal lives of our of our lives, the normal mundane Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturday afternoons of our lives. Does that make sense? So. Because I, I, I think a lot of times with the there is another section with the empowering work of the Spirit that's true, but I think we can get lost in what does all that mean, and miss what the primary work of the Spirit is. I was too slow. Oh, you're okay. There's 260 in the whole New Testament, and there's four. I'm kind of being generous too. There's two that are only about gifts, and two others have gift lists, but I'll call it four, just because I'm feeling generous. And I'm grateful for those four. But the emphasis on the, in the scriptures is not, hey, let's go figure out how we can... Yeah, or, or, um, or even the idea that, you know, I've got this gift I've got to use, and if I don't use it, then somehow um, all the people around me, it's their fault, you know. Instead of, 
instead of just being like, okay, in community, you know, when we're connected to other people, we're going to want to serve them, and the Spirit's going to want to help us and help us serve other people. And the way that we serve is varied because the Spirit gives different gifts. Some people get the gifts of helps. But that's just as miraculous as the gift of prophecy, which is just as miraculous as the gift of administration <laughs> and um, healing. Those are on the same level, even though it doesn't seem that way. Just like sin, right? Sin is all on the same level. Yeah. Even though we... There's some that are bad, some that... I mean, you know, some have different consequences. Right. We see that. But they're all equally the, horrible. The same horribleness. Yeah, right. They're all equally dark and bad uh, yeah. right all that impute and the, there's a ton that's been imputed there's a ton of sin that's been imputed to Christ from each one of us yeah. right all right so does that help like just to give a picture of the per of the person of the Holy Spirit um, and even just to see and show that the um, spirit works in our everyday normal life um, and it's he's not mysterious uh, he's not you know he doesn't come when you light candles or have soft music you know he doesn't um, you know you don't have to use old English language these and thous and you know pray a certain way um, you don't have to speak in tongues you don't have to uh, have some kind of you know uh, every eye bowed, every eye, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed. You don't have to have that kind of thing for the spirit to work. The spirit works in every person who's a genuine Christian right now. What's that? Like what? Oh, don't. I don't want to talk about that. Um, does that make sense? It, it does, and it's helpful because I think a lot of times we miss it, right? We like that's my conscience, or that's uh, you know. It, where it's the Holy Spirit working on us, and we, because it's in that mundane, it's in the little things, it's in the Tuesday mornings and the Wednesday nights, that we don't see that it's the Holy Spirit. And so it's helpful to be reminded that, no, He is actively working yeah. my life, that I should be on the lookout for it. Yeah, right. Rather than, I got this. Right. Right. Huh. Right, and so, and this is, and and this is where, like, you brought up the conscience word, which is a good word, but this is where some of us have consciences that are dull, and some of us have consciences that are overactive. Hyperactive. <laughs> so, some of us need to, and and that's where the spirit can help us, because the conscience is not authoritative, but the spirit is, and so sometimes our consciences need to be informed. And the way we inform those consciences is from the Bible, right? Sometimes there's a sin we're committing we don't know because we don't know that the Bible says that that's wrong. Or sometimes we think something's a sin that isn't. And so we need the power of the Spirit to show us that that's not true from the Scriptures. And then sometimes there's a preference we have that is a preference that is not sin, it's not right, it's not wrong, it's just something that is a preference for you that this is the way you're going to live and this is a choice you're going to make that you can't impose on other people because it's not it's not a scriptural truth. Does that make sense? It's balancing what is a sin and what is not. 
what is what are we commanded to do and what are we not right not and confusing right and and it gets confusing and so that's part of the reason some what we need sometimes is just like hey listen I need somebody to help me with my conscience here yeah. my conscience with this is that overactive or dull <laughs> right. yeah. um, you know is this worth is this worth this yeah and most of the time, the hills we choose to die on are not the hills we should die on, mm-hmm. usually. Um, you know, so anyway, I mean, that's, and those things are, but those things take time and it's hard and it's, you know, all of us have different backgrounds and experiences and so we all need our consciences to be informed um, by the Word of God um, and with the help of other Christians who can help me, you know, help us all. So, anyway, anything else? Any other thoughts or comments or questions? I, I told you I'm not eloquent. I read all the time. I'm learning. I'm really, really, really learning. And one of the scriptures that I read was pray without ceasing. And it's like, God, I, I walk through my house thanking God. God, thank you for the wall that I <laughs> That's right. I said, you think I'm joking. No, no, I'm not. No. <laughs> Showing me the door, the format thing is warped. And yeah. I'm going to trip. Anyway, I do. I pray without ceasing. Yeah. I talk to God all the time. I'm certainly not eloquent. No, but it doesn't take. But it, yeah. But it doesn't take eloquence, does it? It just well, takes. Right. It just takes a willingness and a and a humility to talk to the Lord and just say, Hey, this is where I am, and thank you for this, and thank you for that, and there's always something to thank God for. Thank you for letting me start my car. Exactly. It works. Thank you for waking up. Yeah. Like you said, even out there, for the sun. Yeah. Oh, wow. I do thank you. I'm thankful for November, you know, <laughs> that it's not July. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't need tequila anymore because I used to be a tequila person. Oh, yeah. And I don't do alcohol, no wine, no nothing. Thank you, God. There you go. Yeah. That's great. I even gave up or gave away my hornitos. You did. It was worth like 400 bucks. <laughs> anyway, it's all gone. I'm blessed. Thank you. Praise the Lord. That's good. That's good. Well, and so, and those things are things that the Lord is working in all of our lives, you know. And so, um, praise God for the Holy Spirit being active in our lives, right? He's growing all of us, isn't he? He is. All right. Well, any other comments or questions or thoughts before we stop and call it? You guys can go to lunch somewhere. All right. uh, I'll pray. Well, Lord, um, we're grateful that we have, beyond what we can say and beyond what we're aware of, Lord, we're really grateful that you have worked in our lives so that we can come and care about hearing about your word described and explained. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people and a church that looks to and longs to and presses toward pleasing you. Um, And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us all by your spirit to want to grow. I pray that your spirit would be active in our church uh, this year, the rest of this year and next year, to be able to be a place where 
your work is evident, Lord, in all of our lives. Um, we know we can talk about some of these facts about how you work, but Lord, I pray that you would just awaken all of us to the imminence of your presence and awaken all of us to the the world we live in and the time that it's just short, Lord, and we don't have we don't have all the time we think we have. Um, and Lord, I just pray you would save the lost. I pray that you would spur on the comfortable, and I pray that you would encourage the weak and the downtrodden. Um, and in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I don't often get to come in here. I, I'm glad I did.